Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. everyone and welcome to Speaking of Green. I am your hostess Beth Bond, curator of sustainable news at Southeast Green and we I haven't been on in a while so I'm excited to be back with my audience and I think we have a great conversation for us today. Um, we are going to be um, talking with Dr. James B. McClintock who came to the University of Alabama Birmingham in 1987 and has served as Dean of the School of Natural Sciences and Mathematics from 1999 to 2003, and as Interim Dean of the Graduate School from 2003 to 2005. His research has been funded continuously over the past 25 years by the National Science Foundation and focuses on the aspects of marine invertebrate nutrition, reproduction, and primarily Antarctic marine chemical ecology. His research has grown to include studies of the impacts of rapid climate change and ocean acidification on Antarctic marine algae and invertebrates. He has published over 275, um, has been published over 275 times in scientific publications, and he wrote a book back in 2012 called Lost um, Antarctica. And if you will look at our show notes, we've got several really cool links that you can um, explore to see more of the work that he's been doing. But without further ado, Dr. McClintock, is it okay if I call you Jim? Yes, please do. Call me Jim. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on the show. And I was really excited about this conversation because I love anything where we can talk about faith and science all at the same time. So oh, first yes. off, let's Pleasure. just start off about um, uh, about the study, like how you got into climate, because you know it says that you sort of, you know, graduated into climate. So tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, I started my career in Antarctica really as a graduate student back uh, in the early 1980s, and. I was fortunate enough to uh, get an experience to go to Antarctica as a graduate student, fell in love with doing marine biology there. It is one of the most amazing places on our planet for marine biology. Some of the richest marine communities anywhere are found on the seafloor of Antarctica. And so I got to uh, develop an early career working out of a station called McMurdo, Um, And as a young assistant professor, I spent 10 years uh, working at McMurdo Station, the largest of the Antarctic stations, um, and it is a U.S. station. There's about 1,000 Americans there during the summer, which would be our winter. And while I was working at McMurdo over this 10-year period, I used to hear people speak very fondly of another station, called Palmer Station, which was located on the Antarctic Peninsula. Palmer Station was described to me as the French Riviera of Antarctic stations, the Shangri-La. 
And fortunately, um, my work in chemical ecology, where we look at toxic chemicals that are made by plants and animals that uh, use them to defend themselves, um, it took me to Palmer Station after those 10 years. And for good research reasons that were funded by the National Science Foundation, I have spent the last uh, 15 years living and working at Palmer Station, a much smaller station, maybe about 44 uh, people there during the peak of the research season. Lots of marine biology. But what I didn't realize 15 years ago when I moved to Palmer Station in the peninsula was that I would be living and working in the midst of one of the most rapidly changing regions of the planet. And I mean change. Um, we're talking about an area that has warmed 10 degrees Fahrenheit since oh, the, the sort of the Industrial Revolution. If you go back about 60 years, over 60 years, the air temperatures have, have increased 10 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that is similar or maybe even slightly greater than what we know about warming in the Arctic, where you know the iconic situation with the polar bears, the fact that the sea ice in the Arctic is rapidly disappearing and probably won't be there uh, during summers uh, in the near future. Um, so this, is a, this was an eye-opening experience for me, and I got interested in how climate is affecting not only the ice features of the Antarctic Peninsula, the glaciers, the ice sheets, the sea ice, but also how these changes are affecting the marine organisms there. And, then, and so that's why I got interested in climate change, was I was living in the midst of it. Um, and that's, uh, that ended up in my writing grants and getting funded to do work related to warming and ocean acidification and other things related to climate change. Well, and that's, that's great. And I really want us to explore a little bit more about the the reactions you're seeing in the animals because we can all talk about the you know we all know about the ice um and the huge calvings of you know um the ice coming off the western side of antarctica but tell us how climate change is showing up in the animals okay um probably the most iconic story that i share is the story of the adelie penguins that live on little islands just in front of the station and my dear friend, uh, Bill Frazier, who as a graduate student 45 years ago, tagged 15,000 breeding pairs of Adelie penguins and followed them every year for the last 45 years. Um, Bill knows more about these penguins than anybody in the world. He can tell you whose uncle is related to whose cousin and how many eggs they laid on January 21, 1982. Um, I is just amazing and he has followed the Adelie penguins and seen that about 90% of them over this 45 year period have simply vanished and he believes very strongly that um, what's happening is as the climate is changing the Adelie penguin is being challenged in ways that it has never been challenged before. One thing is that the Adelie penguins arrive on the peninsula about the same time every year to lay their eggs. And they lay their eggs, and then because the air has become warm and more humid, it actually, ironically, is snowing more and later than it used to. And the entire rookeries can be covered uh, in snow. 
after the eggs have been laid. And what this does is it essentially, when the snow melts, the eggs can drown. So you can lose an entire generation of Adelis because of these unseasonable snowstorms. The other thing is that Adelie penguins use the annual sea ice as a platform. They, they get down on their bellies and they toboggan across the sea ice to get out to the edge of the water where they feed on krill the shrimp that form the base of the food webs in Antarctica. And 40% of the sea ice along the Antarctic Peninsula has disappeared over the last 30 or so years. So now the Adelis, instead of tobogganing across the ice, which is pretty easy, they have to get into the ocean and swim offshore to get to the rich krill feeding grounds where they feed on these shrimp-like organisms. So this is another big cost. Um, and this means that the Adelis don't have quite as much energy to successfully raise their young. So there's a number of reasons that are conspiring to make it very difficult for the Adelie penguin. And I would just add one other, the krill themselves, these little shrimp, it's been discovered recently that as teenagers, they live underneath the sea ice feeding on diatoms. So as the sea ice is disappearing, the populations of krill which provide nourishment for the penguins and the seals and the fish and the whales, those are also becoming fewer in number. So these are, this is a, a prime example of an organism, the, the Adelie penguin, our little Charlie Chaplin penguins, that are being negatively in, impacted by this very rapidly warming climate. Okay, so I'm ready to just cry. I don't know if I know. you can chase this um, it is very, uh, it is emotional. And, you know, you mentioned that we all know about the ice. Um, I can tell you just very quickly an experience that I've had that's, that really strikes me, and that is that the glacier behind our station, you know, when I would go down to Palmer 15 years ago, I would hear a huge crash and, and leap up from my desk uh, at my computer and run down the hall, open the door, and look out into the bay and, my colleagues would, would gather around and we'd watch a big wave come down the bay because the glacier had just dropped a, you know, a house-sized piece of ice into the bay. When I was at Palmer this last year, um, about a year ago now, uh, this was happening three or four times a day. You, you did not get up from your desk anymore. It was just part of the, the background noise of living and working at the station. And about 90% of the glaciers on the peninsula are receding. And the changes to, with the Adelie penguin, um, you know, it's not just the, the penguin that's being impacted, but the tiny little phytoplankton that provide food for the uh, krill are being um, negatively impacted. There are many stories to be told about how this ecosystem is, is shifting. And one of the things that people don't realize is that, you know, a community of organisms is always changing, of course. And these changes typically occur over hundreds, maybe thousands, even tens of thousands of years. And what is so fundamentally different about climate change, global warming, is that the rate of change is so rapid. Um, it's happening on the order of years, tens of years. And so for some life, not all life, but for, for much of life, these changes are so rapid that it's difficult for them to adapt and to be able to survive. And that's what's so different. Because um, sometimes people will just say, well, what's the big deal? You know, marine communities or terrestrial communities, they're always changing. 
And that's true, but it's the rate of change. The rate of change that's happening because of the carbon dioxide that we're putting in the atmosphere that's rapidly warming uh, the Earth. So um, I was going to say that um, saw chasing coral, and they were talking about the collapse of the coral reefs, and now we're hearing about collapse of Antarctic Arctic life, which I, I have never been aware. Like, I didn't know that the, the krill fed under the ice. Well, if there's no ice, that's a problem, right? Um, I'm, I'm curious curious um, on two other things that you might be observing. Um, are you seeing a lot of plastic in the animals as you're doing um, your biology work and their stomachs? I know that's a big issue in warmer oceans. And secondly, are you doing any kind of chemical study to see if there are man-made toxins in their systems now? Oh, good questions. Um, as far as plastics, um, Plastics, as you've alluded to, have become a huge uh, issue in marine biology. And people now everywhere, whether you're a scientist or not, are aware that there are areas of our ocean, you know, there's the Pacific uh, plastic patch or whatever they call it, where there's hundreds of square miles of floating plastic. I think what's happened in marine biology that's really opened eyes about plastics is that a lot of these plastics get washed up against the shore, and there they get exposed to ultraviolet radiation where they just sort of sit on a hot beach. They break down into tiny little particles that find their way back into the ocean. And these particles are so small that they're, you know, they're in the guts of the smallest little organisms. Uh, they're called nanoparticles. And these can get in the way of uh, feeding. They can clog up things. They cause problems to these organisms. Now, as far as Antarctica and plastics, I'm happy to say that in my 25 expeditions to Antarctica, I have yet to see plastics washed up on a beach on any of the islands or the mainland of Antarctica that I have visited. Um, I think this is partly because Antarctica has the Antarctic circumpolar current, the largest current in the world. And that sort of circles the continent and keeps things that might uh, be, you know, drifting south from getting to Antarctica, um, which is a good thing. Now, I cannot speak, um, I'm not enough of an expert on plastics to tell you whether or not you can find plastics in the guts of Antarctic penguins or, 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 you know, seals or something like that. It's possible, I suppose. But I think the biggest problems, like you uh, pointed out, are in warmer waters in the tropics and in temperate areas. But this is something that Antarctic biologists are certainly going to have to watch for. Um, your other question had to do with, the, uh, with whether there were pollutants in marine organisms in Antarctica. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yes, sir. Yeah. So in that regard, um, there have been pollutants. Um, there have been heavy metals. There have been uh, some man-made airborne pollutants that have been found in, the, in penguins, in other species of Antarctic seabirds. Um, yes, you know, because Antarctica is connected by the atmosphere to the rest of the planet, um, tiny little airborne pollutants do find their way to Antarctica. They get uh, trapped in the ice. Um, when the ice melts, they enter the ocean. Um, and when they enter the ocean, they end up in the food chain. And when they end up in the food chain, they can end up in a fish or a penguin. Typically, you would detect them at the higher end of the 
food chain, the big organisms, because they tend to concentrate more uh, in a fish or in a seal or a whale than they would in a tiny uh, organism. So yes, Antarctica is not um, isolated from the rest of the world in terms of some of the pollutants. So the, I guess what I'm trying to drive is, is that even if someone doesn't believe in climate change, although you've already very eloquently made the argument that it's happening, um, that just the way we live our modern life is polluting, at, at, at a minimum, is polluting everywhere on the planet. I mean, if it's at Antarctica, then it's everywhere, yes. right? Yes, this is true. And, and the other thing you should realize about Antarctica and climate change is that it does mean something for us here. It, it, just because Antarctica is so far away and so out of mind doesn't mean that Antarctica is not telling us stories. One of the most poignant stories about what we stand to lose by losing the marine life of Antarctica to climate change are the drugs that we have discovered in a number of Antarctic marine organisms, particularly uh, sponges and tunicates and, and animals that on the seafloor of Antarctica that can't get up and run away from a predator. They don't have a shell to hide inside. And in our chemical ecology research over the last 30 years, um, we look for compounds that are toxic um, but also have the potential to become drugs to fight cancer and AIDS and cystic fibrosis and various infectious disease, uh, bacteria. Um, and we have found um, in an Antarctic tunicate, uh, we found a compound that's very active against uh, melanoma skin cancer that is being looked at by the National Cancer Institute as a potential uh, drug candidate. We have found recently a compound in an Antarctic sponge that's active against MRSA, this terrible bacteria that we get when we go to the hospital now that's resistant to antibiotics. Um, and we have the first chemical that really shows the potential to uh, have an effect on MRSA when it's in a biofilm form, meaning it's underneath sort of a protective layer of, of mucus and proteins and things. So my point is the seafloor of Antarctica is, is an ancient ecosystem, millions of years old, millions of years of chemical evolution, a potential cornucopia for compounds that could be important in fighting human disease, why would we squander this immense resource by warming the oceans of Antarctica? I mean, to me, you know, there's the aesthetics of the beauty of the ocean and protecting it, but when it affects your livelihood and your children's health and uh, it's just something to me that's a very compelling way to look at the impacts of climate change. Well, and thank you so much for that insight, because the more we know, the more hopefully urgency we'll feel to take action. We're almost out of time, but I want to um, just spend a couple of minutes, because you have done something that more and more people are doing, which is you're connecting your faith and your call to call for God's creation with your work. Can you tell us a little bit about what what sort of gave you the boost to do that? Yeah, well, in my lecturing on climate change in Europe and in North America, I have what I've been looking for are other doors that aren't as threatening for people when you mention climate change and global warming, because as you know, it's a very politicized issue. And what I find through religion and faith is an, a door uh, because of the biblical sense of the care of creation. And I explored this as an avenue by organizing a workshop 
Um, I was co-director of a workshop called Climate Change and Spirituality. Um, an Episcopal priest, a, a friend of mine and myself, as this, uh, representing the science, got together and we had 50 participants for three days. And I talked about climate change from the scientific perspective and what's going on and its impacts on all of us. And Mark Johnson, the Episcopal priest, talked about um, how similar, you know, the care of creation is when you think of it from the religious perspective as it is from an ecologist who's looking at caring for the planet in terms of ecology. And really, I mean, credit should go also to the very famous Harvard um, evolutionary biologist E.O. Wilson, who has a wonderful book called The Creation, where he, he essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a novel, but he talks with a um, Southern Baptist minister from the perspective of the care of creation and him as a sort of somebody who's championing saving biodiversity. So I think there's a lot of potential here. I'm really excited that um, on December 8th, I'll be speaking to 20 bishops about climate change and global warming, and they're interested in taking this back to their to their uh, parishes. And, and I think that there's a lot of potential. I, people are not as intimidated through this door as they are in, in terms of having a scientist throw more facts at them about climate change. Um, and some scientists, quite frankly, aren't very good spokespeople about climate change. They, they tend to use a lot of jargon. Sometimes they're too dogmatic. Um, but if it was coming from your minister uh, or your priest, the story of the care of creation, it can really uh, resonate with people. And so that's my hope. Well, we certainly appreciate your time and your good work. And um, are, are you available to come? I mean, clearly you're available for lectures if anybody wants you, but are you available to come and talk to churches if, if they're interested? Absolutely. So how will pe- how how do people get more information about the book? How do people get more information about having you come speak? Yeah, um, so I have two books. My first book is Lost Antarctica, Adventures in a Disappearing Land, and it's a, it was published uh, by Macmillan, um, and you can find it online very easily or a bookstore. And my more recent book is called A Naturalist Goes Fishing, which is about the conservation of fish, and it's also about climate change and ocean acidification. And I can be contacted at my email address, which is mccLINTO at uab.edu. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, so it's easy to look me up if you need to. And uh, I would be happy to, to see where we can take our, our dialogue from there. Great. Jim, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And I hope I get to meet you at some point. Yeah. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. So, not that we need any more proof, but I just think the more voices we have and the more uh, scientific discover we have about this topic, the, the more compelling this this, to- this becomes. Um, and um, it makes me sick to think... Um, about how we're we're really starting we're really starting to see true mass extinction uh, incidences right uh, in the landscape and those penguins right just makes me want to cry but 
That being said, there is another very important takeaway on this, and I want to reiterate it, and that is um, a lot of times um, in our consumer products, they say, don't worry about it. It's small concentrations. It's a toxin, but it's a small concentration. Lead and lipstick is one of my major ones. Oh, it's just a small bit. But you heard it from Dr. McClintock, right, that small exposures over and over and over again build up and create big presences in the human body. So we really we need to really start thinking about not only what we're putting in us, but on us and what's around us. Um, if air pollution is reaching Antarctica, think about how bad it must be right here where we, we are creating it. So anyway, I hope this was very helpful. Um, and I uh, hope that you will share this one because I think this one is pretty special. And um, and if you're in a church or or, or or anywhere else and you want them to come speak, I'm sure you can reach out to them. So um, thanks so much to Jim, and I uh, appreciate his time. We are closing out with DJ Lang, Water Drop. My next episode of Speaking of Green is going to be about the new Falcon Stadium, if anybody's been paying attention to the greenest stadium on the planet. We're going to be talking to Tim Teresa, who's in charge of sustainability over the Georgia World Congress Center Complex, which includes the new Falcon Stadium, which is called Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So stay tuned for that. Y'all have a great day. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.